Hello and welcome back to Avatar the Podcast. We have returned, not from the Forgetful Valley, but from real life, although I think I would have preferred the Forgetful Valley. I want to meet some cool ghosts, spirits, it's creatures, kind of spooky there, though. animals. <laughs> I don't know if I trust all those animals with the faces that keep on changing on their patterns. Just paint a face oh. on your chest and you're good. You'll blend right in. They would, I think they would get more upset with you at that point. They would just be like, <laughs> the intruder, the imposter, get him. And then we'd just be gone. We'd be kicked out. Maybe. 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 We'll, we'll stay on, on our side of the reality. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Welcome back. We are your hosts, Acorn Bandit and Booster Greg. And today we're going to be covering The Search Part 3. The finale of this incredible trilogy of comics where we finally find out what happened to Zuko's mom. Yes. But first, as always, we have some reviews to go through. That's right. The first review comes from our friend Bree260. And they write, best podcast ever with three exclamation marks. I've been a fan of Avatar ever since it came out. And now I'm reliving my childhood all over again. This is seriously amazing. It's so in-depth and comical and a nice stress release. Whether you're new to the series or a fan from the start, this is the podcast for you. Love y'all. Oh, thank you, Bree. Thank you. This is so cool. I, again, I love all of the reviews that come in, but I like the ones that sound like commercials for us. <laughs> yep. Recommendations. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, that's a fancy word for it. Recommendations, not personal commercials for Acorn and Greg <laughs> in Avatar the Podcast. Uh-huh. Well, thank you so much, Bree. We super appreciate that one. It's very nice of you to write in. Our next review comes from Majestic Ninja Flame, who writes, Best Avatar Podcast Ever. I love the show and I listen to it every day at work. That is a definite theme. I hope none of you are getting in trouble with your bosses. Or. 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 I, I hope you're not getting in trouble with your bosses as well. But if you do, maybe they start listening to the podcast oh as well and then they get in trouble with their bosses and then their bosses start listening. We're just working our way up through through corporate, essentially, <laughs> at different companies through podcast form. That's what, that's what I think we're doing uh-huh. is happening uh-huh. right now. Short and sweet and beautiful. That's a great, yes. great five-star review. The next one comes from Lindsay Boo 17 And Lindsay Boo writes, the best Atla podcast I have listened to. Hi, Acorn and Greg with three exclamation marks. I have listened to a couple of Avatar podcasts, but yours is my absolute favorite. And I'm just going to say 17 exclamation marks. I listened to it at work and I am caught up. I can't wait for more episodes. My coworkers and I love to listen while we're working. Keep up the great work. You guys are amazing, Lindsay. Oh my gosh. Well, there you go. That's the company right there. Lindsay started listening, got their coworkers listening. Mm -hmm. Soon is going to be their managers and all the way up to the CEO. Oh, I can't wait. CEO, we're coming. Yep. <laughs> Our next review comes from Nice Reader, who writes, This podcast is awesome. Hello, Acorn and Greg. I just wanted to tell you how much I love this podcast. Out of all the podcasts I've listened to, this one is the best. I love all the research the host put into the show and all the puns. I also love how much the hosts get along. When I listen to this pod, I feel like I'm talking to my friends about my favorite show. I finally caught up with the pod, but now I'm upset. I have to wait for the new episodes. Oh, no. I know. I've read all the ATLA and LOK books, and I'm super excited for you guys to read all the books and watch Legend of Korra. Sorry my review is so long. I just love so much about this pod, and I can't even fit it all in this review. Just wanted to let you know this pod rocks, and it's fire. Fire emoji. Anyways, keep up the awesome work. 
Oh, that's really nice. And puns. And puns. And Your puns. puns get a shout out. And they're in there. That's awesome. That's super nice. And not that long at all. Don't worry about it. I feel like with Apple Podcasts, a lot of people get like self-conscious about, oh, this is too much. I promise you when we're looking at it in our Google Doc, it's not as much as what it looks like on your phone. Guaranteed. Yep. yep. I've done that before. There was a time. This Here's a little... Everyone sit by the fire. Here's a little story time <laughs> with, with your best friend, Booster Greg. There was a time where I tried to dictate my notes into my phone when we were watching the main series. Mm-hmm. And I looked at it. I was like, this is like 26 pages. What is this? And then I copy and pasted it. And it was like maybe 10, if that. So yep. it looks like a lot on your phone or device. Promise you it's not. This was a perfect review, as were all the other ones. Mm-hmm. Nice review from a nice reader. Yes. Our second to last review comes from Anthrony, and they write, New, I really enjoyed this podcast on a show that I enjoyed through some difficult and changing times I had at the time in my life. I don't agree with all the theories, but I do enjoy all the little tidbits about the show. Good stuff. I hope you guys continue with The Legend of Korra. Well, you're in luck because we are. We do plan on covering The Legend of Korra. We actually can't wait to do that. And we even talked about our production schedule today before we recorded. We did. And much to our surprise, we're going to be covering Legend of Korra sooner than what at least I thought we were going to. Right. Yep. (laughs) It seemed like it was so far away, but it's not so far away. It's still pretty far, though. So no one gets to Mm -hmm. it. It's not tomorrow. It's not tomorrow. We're still going through the comics, but it's going to be really cool. And I'm excited, as Acorn has mentioned several times, to jump into Korra after reading the comics and knowing like the ins and outs now and being able to have (sighs) a firmer grasp of what reality is like in Legend of Korra and not just what we assume it should be. So much is getting set up. It's crazy. Mm -hmm. We're going to have so much to talk about today. But also, Anthony, thank you for listening and writing in, even if you don't agree with all of our theories. That makes life more interesting. Agreed. If you have any good ones, let us know. You can write us at avatarthepodcast at gmail.com. Yes. And our last review comes from Ang Listener, who writes, Hey, B, love it. And this is where we have about 42 to 53 exclamation points. I'm pretty sure that's hey, bye. Hey, bye. That is perfect. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Hey, bye. Love it. Listening to Avatar Distorted Reality is Basically, Aang in a dimensional disaster where the water tribe is evil with three wave emojis and someone lost his eye. I feel like we've gotten this recommendation before in the past about this podcast series. Yeah. And it's funny because I encountered a distorted reality reference the other day. I think it was like a TikTok or something, some sort of review. So it's just another way of the universe reminding me that we have to at least experience it. So thank you, Ang listener, for (laughs) helping give us another sign. We are going to look into that at some point. Yes. And since that was our last review, I do want to say something very, very quickly. Mm -hmm. I've noticed, because everyone knows I check all the reviews about 15 times a day, which (laughs) is minimum. I do notice that some reviews have been kind of bumping up and down in terms of their order. We, just so everyone is clear, so we're transparent. We go from oldest to newest. So if you write a review in March and then update it in a week or two, it gets bumped down the list. So we cover it later. Just so everyone mm-hmm. knows. I want to be I want to be transparent about that because we get so many great five-star reviews and we want to make sure we read them all when they come in. And we don't want anyone to wait longer than what they have to. Mm-hmm. So 
If you can help it, please do not update the review after the fact, because then it, we don't get to read it sooner. It makes me sad. Unless you're updating it to, I don't know, edit it, make an adjustment, say yeah. something different. If you're editing to get your review read sooner, it's actually going to work opposite. Works the opposite. That's exactly right. <laughs> edit it if you were like, oh, I forgot to mention something here. Oh, I forgot to do this. Absolutely. That's why Apple Podcasts allows you to edit the review. Or if you change your mind about something, right? If you, for whatever crazy reason, you decide you don't like the puns anymore. I don't know why, but it was <laughs> in this fictional world, you can update that. Or if you like them more than you thought you would, update it. But if you're trying to get priority reading, it works the opposite. This is how it works. So cool. Everyone, we're good. Everyone's on and great. Awesome. That's the <laughs> last time I'm going to mention this, the first and last, but I felt like some people might not know that. So there you go. Mm-hmm. That's your PSA on reviews and how they work. Yes. Your podcast service announcement. Oh, perfect. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Let's jump into today's episode, The Search Part 3, or as we like to call it, Face Off, which works on so many levels, and I love it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Before we dive into the actual story, I did want to point out a couple of really cool things about this. These comics came out years ago. It's crazy that we haven't read them before, but we love that we're reading them now. Apparently, The Search Part 3 got some really great feedback in the media. It was called an absolute amazing comic and by far the best of the Avatar comics released so far. They also got a lot of awards. It trended for a while, including The Search Part 2. So this got a lot of attention. And to me, that actually makes a ton of sense because when I was reading this, I'm like, this may be one of the best comics I've read in a really long time. It's so good. It was the so storytelling, good. the pacing and everything. Before we started this call, I was saying to Acorn, I was like, I think this is my favorite of the Avatar just series and comics in general so far. You'll see why. It's so much to talk about, so many twists and turns. You never know what's coming when you think you know what's going to come. They switch it on you or they give you another twist that you didn't think was going to be there. It is wild. And I can see why it got so much praise. Mm-hmm. It's astounding. It is. And it actually picks up right where we left off with Aang standing in front of the mother of faces in the spirit world and Zuko fending off Azula's lightning in the forgetful valley. This is exactly why I read too far last time. I flip yeah. the page and I'm like, oh, we're back to the action. Let's just keep reading. <laughs> Yeah, I had the opposite. I did flip the page, but I was like, that felt like, like I've read many comics in my life. I had a whole other podcast about reading DC comics and adapting formats and stuff like that. And so far, I've it's failed me. This knowledge has failed me. Don't get me wrong. I couldn't figure out where it ended, where it began. But that one, I was like, this feels like a satisfying ending. And then when the action, I was like, nope, we're stopping right there. And even if there's more, I, I don't want more. This is the perfect end to this. <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. Well, I've learned my lesson. I'm going to check before I read the next Never comics. again. <laughs> Never again. <laughs> I spoiled myself for a week. Yeah. It was oh, terrible. No. Oh. Zuko is able to redirect Azula's lightning harmlessly into the sky, sparing Rafa, Misu, and the rest of Team Avatar. Having never seen the move before, a shaken Sokka comments that he may be scared of Zuko again, which made me laugh out loud. Yeah. Well, I don't think Sokka has seen that kind of power at a Zuko up close. Yeah. It's really reminiscent, right, of Aang finding out about Zuko's connection to Roku, how Roku is his grandfather. It's like the same kind of thing where we, the reader slash the viewer, have all these secrets, but then eventually 
in the story, the characters will find out about it and go, wait, what? Yeah. If you think about it, actually, I'm like really going through it in my brain. Sokka's not seen lightning redirection up close. Katara Mm -hmm. has. Sokka hasn't. Oh, poor Sokka. Yep. Azula, still gripped in a paranoid rage, insists that Rafa and Misu are helping Ursa and that they must be dealt with. She calls Zuko naive and the Fire Lord agrees. He has been naive. He tells Katara and Sokka to take Azula down, an order the siblings are very happy to follow. As they begin to fight, Misu pleads with them not to create such a disturbance. The Avatar is trying to bring the spirit to the pool and she will not come if her pool is being disturbed. At that moment, Aang appears and agrees with her, telling the group that they're about to have a visitor. Glowing faces, shaped like masks, float to the top of the pool, and a moment later, the mother of faces herself appears. What a beautiful visual, by the way. It's... <sighs> so Miyazaki-esque for me. Uh-huh. Yep. And there were even some comments about that, how there seemed to be a lot of Studio Ghibli influence in this comic with the magical forest. And I mean, personally, I was seeing a lot of Princess Mononoke influences with this nature spirit and a lot of the shots being just so sweeping and beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this actually, I'll say this right now, because I'm not sure where else to say it. This series, and I think you said this last week, makes me so excited for all the spirit stuff in Korra. Yep. Oh my gosh. I just can't wait. Like I want it right now. It's so cool. Like I thought bending was really cool. And now we're getting these crazy designs for other spirits and all this lore. And just we're getting into the, the, the meat and potatoes now of the Avatar universe. And it feels almost like for me anyways... And this might be a hot take that Avatar The Last Airbender, the proper animated series, is like a prologue into this universe, especially mm-hmm. now that we're going to be getting Avatar Studios content. And it's just I'm so happy. I'm so excited about it. I'm so happy. I can't wait. Yep. I'm like, I've said it so many times. I'm getting sick of hearing it. But <laughs> there's so many things in this comic that just perfectly sets up the world of Korra and the spirits are one of them. I remember feeling a little thrown aback, being like, whoa, where did all these spirits come from? This is like really heavy for a theme coming from a world in the original series where spirits were like a side on the the main dish. You know, it was there. It just wasn't taking center stage. But now I get it. Yeah, I I think in Avatar Last Airbender, we've seen maybe five or six spirits in total. Mm -hmm. Yep. And some of them for a second or two. Yep. But now look at her. The mother of faces. So cool. It was such a great decision. The queen of my heart. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) The masks, though. So what's really cool is in the combined version of the comics, in the back, there's sketches and behind the scenes concepts of the process of making the comic. And there was a whole spread of the different designs that they went through for the mother of faces. And they had a lot of different nature themes, but by far the coolest is with the floating masks and her like tree-like body and arms. And the fact that she has faces all the way around her head. So cool. And you know, since we're on the topic, there was a, a quote from Michael talking about this whole concept of the mother of faces. He was saying that he remembers when Jean first pitched him the idea of mother of faces He was intrigued, but also a little bit worried about her powers being a little too magical. And around that same time, Brian, the writers, and Michael were developing more of the mythology around the spirits for book two of Korra, which we talked about before. And for one of the episodes, Beginnings Part One, they came up with the idea that spirits can take over a human body for a short time, but at great peril to the human. Michael asked Jean to apply that concept to the mother of faces, 
So by making physical contact, the mother faces can alter appearances. So once again, very clear connection between the comics and Korra, which I had no clue of before. What's really cool too, and this is a, if you're reading quickly, you'll miss it because this is page 151 or 150. If you're reading the collected edition, it looks like she can change animal faces as well. As you'll see, there's a wolf mask or face. There is a bunny on there as well. So I'm wondering if it's not just people, but also animals Ooh. that she can change face because animals have faces. Mm-hmm. And why would she have some of these like very clearly, not just like a mask. It's like, that's a wolf head right there. A dog head. Mm-hmm. I wonder if she can do that. It's really cool. And an alien. Is that an alien or is that just a mask? I don't know. Now, now I'm going crazy. <laughs> now I'm losing it. Too many faces in the forest. Too many faces. I'm seeing them everywhere. <laughs> Well, we're going to jump back to Hira in a flashback where Ursa and Norin are sharing a meal and talking about the coincidence of a theater director named Norin directing a play like Love Amongst the Dragons, a play in which the dragon emperor himself takes on the name Norin when he enters the mortal world. (gasps) Norin agrees that she has a point, but addresses her by her name when he does so. Ursa Mm -hmm. is startled and immediately concerned and gets up to leave, but Norin stops her asking her not to leave before he has a chance to explain. He then tells her that when they were six, she kicked him in the stomach and pushed his face in the dirt. And when they were 21, she shattered his heart. Ursa turns in disbelief. The man before her asks if she's really going to walk away before they even had the chance to have a proper conversation. With tears streaming down her face, Ursa says his real name, Ekum. Now, I'm sorry. My memory's a little fuzzy on this one. (laughs) Uh-huh. Is there a certain handsome member of this podcast that theorized about this maybe an episode ago? There was. And there was mm. a co-host who kept her mouth shut because <laughs> she, she knew. knew. <laughs> but yes, I you were right. <laughs> love this. I love it so much. Not just because I was right, because it just makes sense. It works, right? It does. And it makes him more of a, a prominent character, right? Because before mm-hmm. he was the love interest that got left behind when our main character got taken away. But now he gets to come back and have more of a character arc, which is amazing. Yeah, because he is my favorite character from the comics right now. And I'm glad that they decided to put him in a more prominent role in this book because he deserves it. Mm-hmm. He's a good guy. And he's got tears in his eyes. This is such a touching said. moment. Oh really my gosh. Good. And so does she. Oh, <laughs> there's lots of crying in this comic, which is is great because we have some really heavy emotional stuff going on that we're going to talk about. Yes. But back in the present, the mother of faces announces herself to the humans before her, telling them that it is she who grants identity to the world. While she has never strayed from the path her wolf chooses for her, she has come to this pool in deference to the avatar, the great bridge between the spirits and the humans. And I just have to stop and point out that there. There's this an exchange between Sokka and Aang where Aang's like, see, I told you. And Sokka's like, okay, all right, all right. You're the great bridge guy. No one was calling that into question. Right. He's like, why are you rubbing? I, I did. I believe you. I went to the, he doesn't say this, but he went to the spirit world. He's seen <laughs> spirits. He can't remember it, but he has. Uh-huh. It's just funny. I, I love that exchange as well. I also, I just want to point this out very, very quickly. I love the mother of faces monologue when she comes in. I am the mother of faces. Through me, separateness came into the world. How regal does that sound? How impressive? How just like absolutely fable-esque does yeah. that? Like it's so well-written. Just that that one line. And like you said, through me came identity. 
it just feels so like epic. It and does she's feel got epic. Water whirling around her, faces floating around her. She, oh my god, I love her. You know, actually, it's very much in line with like the original myths and legends of the world. You know, like humans trying to explain why does it rain? Why does the sun rise and, and set? Yeah, like, why what do we is have the different moon? faces? Yes. Yeah, why do we have different faces? Except in this world, it's an actual spirit. There's yes. an actual explanation, which is just so cool. And you're right. She is queenly and regal. And she's probably my favorite spirit now. Hands she got down. a pet dog. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> What's not yep. the love here? A spirit wolf. I mean, mm-hmm. she has everything going for her. Her son's a little iffy, but we're going to talk about him later. Yeah. A little iffy is putting it very nicely. <laughs> yep. I don't know. For me, just quick voice acting note. Mm. Uh, I think she sounds like Laura Bailey to me. With like a lot of reverb behind her. And Laura Bailey was also the voice of June. I understand that. But she has that just like, I don't know. She's like a really nice tone <gasps> to her voice. So put a big reverb on there. Maybe a slight echo as well. And uh-huh. you're good to go with, with the mother of faces as far as I'm concerned. Yep. I could totally see that. I was also kind of hearing in my head, like almost like a Kyoshi voice, except maybe clearer, Ooh. which is actually in the same realm. Yeah. Yeah. With the delivery. Also... Actually, now I'm really kind of thinking about it. Maybe if we go off the deep end, Lucy Lawless, Xena herself. Uh-huh. I could see I that know. too. I could see that as well. Yeah. But it's like a, a kind of deeper tone. Yep. For sure. And by the way, as a friendly reminder, uh, Jennifer Hale was the voice of Kyoshi for everyone. So everyone remembers. Nice. Yes. I'm seeing a trend here. Strong, independent, leading ladies. Yes. With their pet dogs. With their pet dogs. <laughs> Sheer shoe. Sheer shoe is kind of um, like a dog. <laughs> <laughs> wolf, the, the wolf spirit. Yeah, uh, we'll find out in the book. We'll I go. hope so. I hope I he hope. has a dog. That'd be really cool. At this point, Aang and Zuko look to each other, hopeful that the spirit will help them find Zuko's mother. But a moment later, the mother of faces dashes their hopes. She grants one favor each season to one human. They will have to decide who will have it. Aang tries to persuade the spirit to grant them two with some flattery, but the mother of faces remains unmoved. The group agrees that Misu deserves to have the favor, seeing as she and her brother have been waiting for years. But just as Misu approaches the great spirit and begins her request, Azula marches in front of her and demands to know where Ursa, princess of the Fire Nation, is. The mother of faces shows them an image of Ursa as she appeared upon her return to Hira, telling them that she remembers this woman. She could not understand why a human so beautiful would ask for a new face. When the princess approached her, the mother of faces offered her a plain face as a test of her sincerity, and Ursa accepted. With these words, the image shifts into a new face, Noriko's. My jaw (laughs) dropped to the basement, not even to the floor. It went through (laughs) the floor into the basement, and it got a little bit of the the ground underneath the foundation. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Got a little toasty from the Earth's core. It dropped so hard. As smug as I was about Ecom and Norin, uh-huh. this I did not see coming. Oh my God, me neither. The brilliance in the presentation of these reveals being mm-hmm. like, oh, hey, so here, here's, here's the truth of it. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that at the end of book two, Ecom is probably Norin. They've yeah. left all these little clues here and there, right? Like we saw him go into the valley. He never comes out. They assume mm-hmm. he's dead, but we all know he's not because they don't confirm it with a body. They lead you there, right? And this yep. one, they're like, oh, remember how we led you here? Guess what? Bam. Punch in the face. <laughs> here you go. Yep. Right in front of you the whole time. You're right. Like with, with Ecom, 
they led you with breadcrumbs and you're thinking, oh, okay, yeah. So he came back to town, started a new life, met a nice girl, got married, had a kid. He has a family now. Good for him. He, you know, yeah, he made a he life for himself. So, all right, cool. Ecom's taken care of. Where the heck is Ursa? Yeah. And then this delivery, it's like, oh my God. I assume she had died. And I guess in a sense, she did. Yep. In a sense. So I was half right with my theory about Ecom and his family. <laughs> uh-huh. But this was just what a great reveal. And you know what? It kind of makes sense that no one has spoiled this for us so far. This is the part mm. one of the part two where we were surprised things were not spoiled for us yet. Right yep. here. Oh, believe me. I was reading through this and I was shocked. Yeah. After all these years, I hadn't been spoiled. Mm-hmm. Man, it's a miracle. Thank you, everyone, by the way, who has not spoiled this for us. Yes. Thank you so yes. much. Cannot, I cannot say it enough. Well, we weren't the only ones shocked. Mm-hmm. When he hears this, Zuko turns to his sister to talk about their mother being the woman they had just met, but Azula is gone. He quickly realizes that she has gone back to Hira with this new information and rushes after her. Misu shows him a shortcut back to town and the two of them share an apologetic goodbye. He's like, I'm sorry. And she's like, no, it's okay. You you were nice. You were kind. And he's like, okay, well, bye. <laughs> and so he <laughs> runs off and Sokka joins him. The two friends racing back to the town through the forest. Jumping back into the past, we follow Norn and Ursa to the theater's prop warehouse, where it becomes clear that things haven't gotten any cleaner since he took over. Ursa tells him that she had masks secretly made so she could have a set to remind her of the acting troupe, to remind her of him. Norrin admits that after she left, he died. Perhaps not literally, but he might as well have. The pain of her absence was made worse with the way the townspeople viewed him, as one part of a whole. Without Ursa, they looked at him like something disfigured. He couldn't leave the only home he'd ever known, so he went into the forgetful valley instead. It's what people do when they want to forget their misery, after all. But then, an amazing thing happened. He found a spirit wolf, and then met the mother of faces, and he was granted a new face. A new identity allowed him to come back to Hira a different person. Ursa looks closely at his face, awed by the impossibility of him being there in front of her. She asks him why he never married or had children, and he lowers his head. Ursa, you know why. That killed me. Mm-hmm. That's like that's like OTP material right there. Like, oh my God. <laughs> it's just so much to unpack in there. It's like he clearly in love with her and is not going to move past it. She, this makes me sad a little bit, doesn't realize how irreplaceable she was to Ecom, which is so sad. And I mean, they're together now. So there's the silver lining. Just a lot of trauma on both ends, it looks like. More so on Ursa's Mm -hmm. end, I would say, than Ecom's. But, you know, clearly he couldn't live with the looks that everyone was giving him. Just like pity all the time, it sounds like. Yeah. 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 But I mean, to your point, he basically called her the love of his life yeah. when he was oh, yeah. trying to stop the the carriage from leaving. And her her side of things is he'll be better off without me. Like, I can't change this fate. I will let him go so he can live his life and move on. Meanwhile, he never did. <laughs> yeah. Meanwhile, he basically killed his identity, became someone else and still pined after her and still waited for her. Like, oh my God, this is the stuff of fairy tales. And like, Okay, actually, no. This is the Princess Bride. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, jeez. He's basically Wesley. Yeah. It also, like, it kind of diminishes her sacrifice a bit, though, mm-hmm. in my opinion, right? A little bit. Makes it feel useless. 
Yeah. Like, I don't know. And obviously he lived with it for as long as he could, but mm -hmm. I don't know. It's just, it's bittersweet. It is. This whole scene, bittersweet. Yeah. Norrin suggests that Ursa get a new face as well to keep her safe and allow her a second chance at life. Ursa wonders if a new identity would allow her to return to the capital city undetected, giving her a chance to see her children. Norrin gently asks what kind of life that would be, and Ursa responds that he can't understand what it's like. Being apart from her children, left wondering if they're happy or sad or in pain, is torture. Still conflicted about what she will do afterwards, Ursa takes Norrin's arm and agrees to seek his spirit in Forgetful Valley. Oh man, it's like, it's not a good idea, Ursa. It's not a good yeah. idea. It's not a good idea, but something I'm I'm really excited to talk about is just like the psychology behind her character, which we'll really see in the next scene, but just she is in such a tough position. And I think the way that they explored that position is really beautiful. I agree. I guess if the choice is never seeing your children again or seeing them from afar, mm -hmm. the choice is fairly simple for her. And I, I say that yep. with all due respect, right? Like it's not simple, but you know, it's the best that she's going to get. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. In the present, Aang is also seeking the mother of faces. He dives deeper into her pool with a bubble of air bent around him, calling out to her to have mercy on Misu and Rafa. The light fades around him as he swims deeper, and he's soon met with a group of round glowing masks. Before Aang can make sense of them, they attack, revealing themselves to be giant crabs and the faces to be the top of their shells. Aang dodges their attacks and bends ice crystals around their sharp claws, determined not to hurt them, just like all the other spirit animals. His search is cut short when he floats above an underwater vent and is caught in the powerful geyser that shoots out of it. The force of the water throws him out of the pool where he's caught by Katara's waterbending. Did you notice what the vent looked like? A face! It's a face. He basically got like spit. <laughs> spit out yeah. of the pool. When I was reading this, this is one of my very few nitpicky things. This is like mm -hmm. the most minimal nitpicky I can possibly get. How deep is this pool? <laughs> Yeah, I had that thought too. And I like to think that a massive spirit worm or some creature like bored a hole down into the earth yeah, and it filled with spirit water because that's what it feels like. It's just like a tube that goes down into the earth. In my head canon right now, which maybe this gets confirmed by Cora, maybe not. Like, I don't know how traversing necessarily to the spirit world would look in a pool because Korik's girlfriend or wife was pulled in the pool. I wonder mm -hmm. if it's just a portal. So like the pool is only so big, but when it, the spirit world is activated at it, for lack of a better term, then you just drop right down into the mother of faces realm mm. and it spits it back out and maybe closes the realm. I don't know. But at first I was just, he's keeps on going down and down and down and down. And I was kind of <laughs> like, all right, that's enough. That's enough. <laughs> yep. Get to the point where it's like, is this possible? I it's, we're in a forest. Yeah, they, they got right to the point where I, was, I started questioning it and then he gets spit out. <laughs> mm -hmm. So funny. Art note from the artist, the idea for the faces on the crab shells actually came from Beijing Opera. Oh, Which I could totally see. It has like a kind of a kabuki-esque yeah. look to it where it has the swirls of color that kind of represent the expression and the angles and lines of a face. Yeah, yeah. I think yeah. they're, they're kind of cute too. The, with their actual little eyes peering out from the, from the shell. <laughs> Are. The mother of faces follows Aang to the beach, her fury disturbing the waters of the placid pool, as she says, Since the beginning of time, I've fashioned faces with great care and deliberation, with all my heart. In each face, I put a piece of my own being. But then these, these humans trample into my forest to make demands of me as if I were their servant. 
they dare ask me to replace my precious gifts with new ones. Do you know how it feels to be told by such insignificant beings that your work is inadequate? Aang tries to tell her that that's not what they intend with their requests, but he is cut off. She continues by saying that in granting requests, she is swallowing her pride. Once a season is all she can tolerate. And him, he is supposed to be the best of the humans. And yet he is defiling her sacred pools and scolding her like she's a child. She orders them to leave the forest. Her demand is met with whispers and shouts of get out from the trees around them as spirit animals creep out of the shadows. The humans look around at a forest that has turned against them. The mother of faces. I have not mentioned this before. This is just something that's kind of just occurring to me. This is the third time we're reading through this. She's very motherly, not just in her name, but like Mm. there are parts in this book where she has these exchanges with Aang and it's like a mother talking down to her child. (laughs) Yes. Like when he was earlier, when he was asking for more wishes, she was like, it's like, hey, can I have ice cream for for dinner? All right, fine. Can I have three scoops of ice cream for don't get greedy? You can Uh have one. (laughs) And now this is like when your mother, father, guardian, parental figure, what have you, says, don't do that. And then you kind of do it. And no, really, don't do that. And then you do it. And then after the third time, they're just like this explosion of rage and just Mm -hmm. this like all of the feelings that the mother faces has are just at the surface. She's angry. She doesn't care anymore. I love this mother-son dynamic that she seems to have with Aang in this book because we don't get that. Yeah, that I imagine she has with every creature because she's similar to like birthing a life into the world. She's giving them identity through a face. Well, I I think more so with Aang too because he's the avatar. So he's supposed to understand. He's the great bridge between the physical and spiritual world. Mm -hmm. So I think she feels even more of a connect with him because not only did she mold his face, but he is now like able to talk to her and like Mm -hmm. not just if they happen to be by her pool when her dog's taking a drink kind of there you know yep and i think that's why she gets more upset with ang that he's really pushing the limits i feel like with a person she's like get out of here and maybe send like a couple creatures at him and that's it (laughs) no instead you're right she's like shame on you let me tell you why i'm mad exactly yeah it's like she's trying to explain it to him and not rationalize but she's trying to get him to see her point of view which she, I mm-hmm. imagine she doesn't waste her time with mere mortals like you or I. Right. You're right. It's more of a scolding back at him saying, yeah. here's why I'm mad. This is my place. You should know. Here's what you did to piss me off. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. it's such a great... And I mean, also take into account the fact that she's this giant, powerful spirit who is scary as all heck. And it's just a very powerful moving scene where you're just like, oh my goodness, they're in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, and said it once, said it before. And it was probably because I'm playing Elden Ring right now. But she looks like such a Soulsborn boss, whether it be an oh, Elden Ring, 100%. Bloodborne, Dark Souls, like just mm-hmm. beautiful, but scary at the same time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So we leave our heroes in potential mortal danger to hop back into the past where we see Norin returning to the Forgetful Valley, but this time with Ursa by his side. The pair fashion shelter and hunt for food content with this new and simple life together as they wait for the mother of faces to show herself. And I just gotta, I just gotta give credit where credit is due, Greg. Mm-hmm. One of your nitpicks was that Misu and Rafa kept moving through the forest and you were like, why don't they just stay put? Yeah. Take a pool yeah. and just wait? Well, that's essentially what Ikum and Ursa do. <laughs> right. 
this is a smarter thing to do. But also, like, this isn't Ecom's first rodeo either. Uh-huh. So he's a, he's an old hand at this by now. He had a whole process. It's the same process, right? Yeah. Like the <laughs> steps and everything. Yeah, actually, now that I'm I'm thinking back to the first book, yeah, it's the same exact thing. He just camps out at one pool and he stays there however long it takes. Mm-hmm. This is actually very Jedi-like almost. You have two train of mm. thoughts, the Jedi and the Sith, right? And if you look at, I mean, how can I say this very quickly? Look at the Duel of the Fates. You notice that Darth Maul paces back and forth, back and forth. Mm. Rafa and Misu. And you notice that Qui-Gon just meditates there. Yep. Ecom. Yep. Very two different schools of thought. And I yeah. actually thought about this more because I actually think that it's very in tune with their personalities where Misu and Rafa left their home to try to get this fixed. Misu is almost driven with this relentless need to fix, to learn, to change. Yeah. So it makes sense for them to get to their destination and not be able to stay put. They have to keep pacing and searching and looking. And I imagine that, especially in her situation, every time she looks at Rafa, she's reminded of what she's trying to do, which makes it or would make it very difficult to stay put. Yeah. It's also very interesting. Ekum figured out neutral drink all by himself. Yeah. It's really interesting. He waited and listened. Yeah. And I also suppose to to Rafa and Mizu's credit, water tribe are fairly nomadic, it seems. Mm -hmm. Although not the northern where they're from. But like they go with the flow. That's kind of like their personality trait. So they go, well, not this one. We'll go to the next one. Just go with the flow. Just keep on moving. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Where Ekum is just like, no, here we stay. This is what we do. We hold our ground, which is almost earthbendery. Yeah. Interesting. A couple other little things too. Ursa's hairstyle is the same as it was when she was 21 to show that it's like a, a passage of time, so to speak. She's mm. returning back to the way that she used to be when she was last here. And then also I found it really sweet that she's calling him Norin, embracing his new identity rather than calling him Ekum. That I wondered about the psychology behind that personally. Because it could mm-hmm. just be like a respecting his change and not, I don't know, for lack of a better term, outing him as being Ecom because he doesn't want those looks, right? She's trying to respect that. But I feel like, is it easier for her to use the new name because there's a new face associated with it? Mm, I think so. Yeah. I think you're right. I think it's a combination of things. Yeah. And, and what I wonder if there's any sort of psychological or subconscious hesitation because he is Ecom, but he doesn't look and probably doesn't sound and doesn't mm-hmm. have the same name. I imagine it took a while. Yeah, I feel like. To get used to it. It's just it's just so fascinating, this whole like Ecom being Norm and mm-hmm. her accepting it very quickly and falling back into old habits. And yep. like they, they, once they figure out who they are, they're just back in love again. They're having a picnic. They're having a good time. Mm-hmm. They're living out in the wilderness and they're happy about it. Yeah. Well, maybe that's why that they feel so good about waiting in one spot too, is because they have each other. So it's yeah. going to take however long it's going to take. Yep. And it's just accepting it. Interesting. Yeah. I also like to think it might be a form of practice too. Like she's expecting to stay there with him, with a new yeah. face, with a new identity. And so yeah. it's almost like, Let's start slipping into that role. Let's start calling him by his new name, respecting that decision, practicing for this new life. It's just, I just love it. I just love everything about this. That's actually one of my favorite things about this comic is just the psychology. It's very simple, clear dialogue, but it's everything in between the lines that Mm -hmm. I was paying attention to. And that's a, that is Mm -hmm. a sign of good storytelling when everything you read within the context of the scene and the sequence of the plot makes you think yes. five times more 
than just about the words. Mm-hmm. So good. So after a couple months of them being there in the forest, one night over dinner, they received the sign. Across the pool from their camp, the great spirit wolf approaches and quietly laps at the pool's water. Norin tells Ursa that this is it. The mother of faces is near. Ursa closes her eyes, her face tightening in pain. She admits that the last few months spent with him felt like finding her place in the world. Recognizing her hesitation, Norin suggests that they just bring her children back to Hira so they can live together like a family. But Ursa tells him that Ozai would never allow it. That would not only endanger them, but also the entire town. Resolute in her decision, the princess approaches the great spirit. I just want to say very quickly, so sorry for interrupting. I was so enraptured in their reigniting of love. I forgot about mm-hmm. Ozai for like two pages. <laughs> yeah. And then she says the name and it's bold as well. They bold the, the, the fond on Ozai. And I was like, yep. oh yeah. That guy. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that hurricane of a situation that she left behind. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And just like a note to add here, going into this next section too, Michael Dante DiMartino was immensely pleased with Ursa's depictions here. This is something that Jean Luen Yang wrote. And when it was presented, Michael is like, yes, chef's kiss. This progression with her character is great. He was just generally pleased with her characterization throughout the novel. That's got to just feel so great for Jean. Oh my God. I know. Like talk about hitting it out of the park over and over and over again. Yeah. Yeah. Just so this is probably say something a little bold right now. This is probably for me, one of the most noteworthy stories that we've watched or read so far. Mm -hmm. I think number one is Zuko's story arc just in general. But I think this is like number two for me. Yeah, I agree, actually. And you know what? Okay, now that's a great point because again, going into writer mode real quick. Mm -hmm. Yes, the story in Avatar about a young airbender learning to control the elements so he can fulfill his destiny to be the Avatar, to save the world and provide balance to the elements. Yeah, really exciting story. But what's the story that we remember more? Zuko's redemption arc. Yep. The story of a boy trying to find his identity in the world who starts out as a bad guy, who then switches sides, joins the good guys, and in the process, finds himself. And now, same thing. What's really impacting us here? The story of a girl whose future was taken from her, forced to go into a situation in a life that she didn't want, and then her escape from it, and the rekindling of her love with her old flame, and the slight spoiler for the next part, the loss of her identity in the process. Mm -hmm. Like all of that is very, very emotionally hard hitting content. And that's the kind of thing that we react to in stories. Our humanity, our need to create order in the universe through story relies on that emotion. So again, I'm going to step off my soapbox now, but like, holy crap, good storytelling, golf clap for for a gene. Yes. (laughs) That's why it's working so well. And I love it. I am now in the bandwagon of please make this animated. Right? Me too. I'm I'm hopping in there too. What if oh my god, what if, what if, what if, what if, what if, what if? We know that mm-hmm. Avatar Studios is making a feature of some kind. <gasps> what if it's one of these? What if it's this specifically? You could oh have this without having the promise animated. It doesn't have to be a series, it could be a movie. It could be a yep. movie. Yep. There's quite a bit that you could probably trim out as much as I hate to admit it. Like I can't remember his name now, but the Yu Yan Archer. He probably doesn't need to be, you know, stuff like that. But this would be a beautiful animated movie. So I I don't know. I'm in the same boat as everyone else here. But what if it's this? 
How amazing would that be? I mean, how cool and appropriate would it be for their first feature length film to be a story as magical as this, which has so many ties to Studio Ghibli, Mm -hmm. the studio that we keep relating storytelling aspects and visual aspects back to. That'd be Mm -hmm. a really cool way of kicking off the studio's media you know, so cool. like the, the yeah. content coming out of them. That'd be cool. Yeah. And and it's a story that maybe not a lot of people have read or know of. That too. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I don't mm-hmm. know. Anyway, that's just, that's just me speaking out loud. Yep. We'll see. But we're going to jump back into this very emotional scene. Yes. <laughs> Ursa is walking up to the mother of faces. And when she asks for a new face, the mother of faces responds with an image of a plain one. And she basically asks, would you accept a face as plain as this? And this is also where we see her asking Ursa, I don't understand why a woman as beautiful as you would want to change her face, but here, how about this one? And what Ursa tells her is, yes, any face will do as long as it's new. The mother of faces then tells her that she senses much pain in Ursa. Does Ursa really believe that a new face will relieve her of that pain? The princess acknowledges that she knows the pain comes from a life that she did not choose for herself and that receiving a new face will not impact that at all. The mother of faces then asks her, would she like a new mind as well as a new face so she does not remember the life that came before? Ursa clarifies if it would mean she'd forget Norin, her children. To each of these questions, the mother of faces asks, are they a part of the life you wish to forget? Realizing that she would be forgetting her children in exchange for the life she never got to live with Norin, she breaks down in tears. But it's a decision she has to make, and she finally does. Thinking of what a horrible decision she's making for her children's sake, Ursa agrees. My lord, I did Mm. not expect this. This is where I'm reading on the couch, and I gasp out loud, and my partner is like, are you okay? And I'm like, yeah, just a twist I did not expect at all. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I have mixed emotions about this decision. Mm -hmm. It feels uncharacteristic of her. Because she's named Ursa, which means bear, because she's a mama bear. Yeah. Who will do anything for her children. And she just accepts that there's nothing she can do for her children anymore and then chooses to forget that life. Yeah. So coming at it from, again, a psychological standpoint, I thought about this. And to me, it makes sense because it really does fall into that rock in a hard place kind of position where the reason she left the Fire Nation is because it was the way she would protect her children. She left Ozai guaranteed their safety. They were collateral. So here she's again in this position where now it's the rock and the hard place of her emotional pain and it feeling like torture to be away from them and the option of forgetting them and being able to move on. And so I think from her standpoint, she's thinking, I can't go back anyway. I have to leave them behind. So even though it feels like I'm betraying my role as a mother to them, I'm going to do this because I have to move on. I can't go back for them the way I want to. I see that. Yeah. It's just like, and I guess it's the point. It doesn't sit well with me. And that's the point, right? Because it's awful. Because it's a terrible. It's a terrible decision. Like terrible situation to be in. I mean, she could have also, hear me out on this one, got mm-hmm. plain face, move back to the palace try to become work her way, become a servant. <laughs> there you go. Mm-hmm. She knows the inner workings and how to get up there. So, But then she wouldn't be with Ikum anymore. He's got a new face too. Bring him along. <laughs> Why not? Have them be royal servants, royal attendants. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Although that she'd probably have to be Azula's servant. 
And maybe maybe just forgetting about her children is the better option at that point. I don't know. Yeah, I think location plays a role in this too. Because like, let's say they lived in one capital and could decide to change their faces and live in another capital. That's kind of an even exchange for where to live. But Mm. the comparison of their childhood village where they grew up, where their families grew up, their only home that they've ever known, to give that away and move back to a capital where your future isn't even guaranteed. I think that's also at play here, which again, going back to a storytelling point, clear consequences of decisions is what makes a good story also. Yeah. I also, now that we've been kind of talking about this and chewing on this a little bit, I think she is also protecting her children from herself. Mm, I, mm-hmm. I believe that she recognizes that she cannot stay away from them. She's been away for a couple months at most at this point, right? And she yep. has been actively trying to devise a plan, scheme her way using spirits, using powers beyond her comprehension <laughs> to sneak peeks at her children. She can't Mm -hmm. do this. She recognizes that as awful as it is, she has to erase them from her mind. Yep. For her, for their safety. Guarantee their safety. Right. Because she shows up with that face. Guess what? You think Rizuko's got a rough face now? Yeah. Mm. (laughs) Yeah. Yep. That is absolutely, I think, what's going on. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. The mother of faces presents the face of Noriko and tells Ursa to hold still. The face flows onto her head like cloth and is pressed into place by the mother of face's hands. Ursa cries out as light bursts from her head. When it's done and the mother of faces retreats back into her pool, Ursa cries out for Norin, who comes to embrace her, telling her that he's there. He'll always be there. Sometime later, a wedding is held. It's, this is beautiful. This whole process of putting on a new face. Yeah. It's so like ethereal. Oh my gosh. The decisions, like the creative decisions that were made are so good. So if you've not read this and you're just kind of listening along because you want to know the story, everything in the flashbacks has a sepia-like tone to it. Mm -hmm. Except the face. It's like the warm hues of the flashback are fighting with the cool hues of this process. And it Mm -hmm. makes us really like interesting visual and the face is not like a physical it's not like it's not like we made like the face off they kind of joke in the beginning like Nicolas Cage and and John Travolta's face is just (laughs) plastered onto each other right no it's like it's a very like majestic kind of process and it seems somewhat painful towards the end but the Mm -hmm. beginning feels very serene and very like beautiful almost yep it's almost like taking a gauzy handkerchief holding it up and letting it drop yeah. It's that kind of movement, except horizontal. It's kind of like the plastic bag from Donnie Darko. <laughs> yeah. <Kinda. laughs> as funny as yeah. that is to say, but it, it kind of has that look to it as well. And it's when the change gets solidified, everything goes back to that sepia tone. Yep. And it's just everything is glowing and it's just, it's beautiful. The, the art decisions on this are just A+. plus. Yep. Oh, gosh. And just a, a note about the love between Norn and now Noriko. Just... <sighs> I love themes like this where, and this might be my moral of the issue at the end, Mm -hmm. but love isn't bound by shape or form. And it's a very interesting thought. The fact that Ursa still loved Ikum when he was wearing Norin's face and Norin immediately loves Ursa when she's wearing Noriko's face. And just the concept of only the face is changing. Nothing else is. They still have the same bodies, the same eyes, the same energy. I don't know if I agree with that for Noriko. I don't know you if think I agree more with that. changed? Well, yeah, like maybe not. 
and I'm overthinking this and I understand this and people are going to not like this take. I don't think Norin didn't change his personality didn't change anything. He just changed his face. So he's still Ecom. Oh, I he see just what looks saying. different because of the mind change. She erased all this trauma and tragedy and everything. So like, does that make her more like what she was when she left? And that is, that's the Ursa that he knew and love probably. And I've just talked myself back into being okay with this. <laughs> But like my gut reaction yeah. when I was reading this is like, you're not Ursa anymore in yeah. any sense of the word. No, you're right. I think she returned back to what? 21 year old Ursa? Yeah. yeah. Um, that's who he loved. And that makes sense now. Then I'm glad because I would have walked around being angry about this for a little bit of time. So <laughs> good. Good. We're talking about it. But like, that was my gut reaction is like, you replace enough parts of the whole. It's not the same thing anymore. Yeah. And I think in this case specifically, it's a situation of like eternal sunshine of the spotless mind where you're selectively removing memories. Yeah. And what remains is your core identity, your core personality. It feels very monkey paws-ish to me, but we're not. <laughs> Be careful what you wish for. Yeah. <laughs> we're, we're, this is not the moral of this comic. So the, the you know, Gene's not going to be jumping into that mm-hmm. side of the story, the, the dark yeah. side of the wishes, so to speak. But that was just something I thought. I was just like, you're not even the same woman anymore in two different senses. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't matter because I, I, I do really enjoy how you put it where love is love and their bond is so strong that it doesn't matter what she looks like, mm-hmm. who she is. They're in love. Yeah. It's so nice. Yeah. Also, something we haven't verbalized before, but this explains why she didn't react to Zuko when he came to town, even though he was in disguise. Mm-hmm. You would think... Someone who saw their kid when they were, what, seven years old or something would see, eventually would recognize them. And I even thought... Maybe not, though. Possibly not, especially with Zuko, because he has half his face burned. But even in that moment, I was thinking, you know, this is weird. Does she know? Like, after I found out that Noriko was Ursa, I thought back to that moment when they were in the home having a conversation and she was like, oh yeah, when I got here, even I was hearing the rumors about Ursa. And she was what I thought. I thought she was like playing dumb. And I'm like, what a cruel thing to do. Or even if not that, wow, how'd she not recognize her own son? But now it makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. She, all of that is gone, but I, I could, if they didn't do this part where she erased her memory, I could give the writing the benefit of the doubt where she wouldn't recognize Zuko because he was, is what, what, seven, eight years since she saw him. Mm -hmm. So he's going through puberty at this point. His bone structure is completely different. Like it's one of those things where if he had been like, I'm Zuko, she'd probably be like, look, I'd be like, oh yeah, now I see it. Right. But it's, I, I could forgive that. But I think as much issue as I had at first with the mind wipe, I'm okay with it. And it's mm-hmm. the smarter decision from a storytelling perspective as well. Yeah. And a final cool fun fact before we move on in the story is that apparently amnesia was always going to be a factor in the story. Hmm. Michael just didn't know how it was going to work out until they actually wrote the story out. Interesting. Yeah. So apparently amnesia was going to be the factor that kept Ursa from contacting her children for so many years. But the details of how that worked out didn't actually come to be until they were plotting out the search. And this refers back to what we were talking about with Cora and how the spirit concept was an influence. And they were going off of a lot of the information that they had been building for Cora with the whole contact and that sort of thing. So I think it's cool. I love hearing about how like the production team had a Bible at the beginning of the original animated series. And there were certain concepts yeah. in that Bible that were always going to happen. They just didn't know how they were going to get there. Same idea. 
for me, that's just the sign of good storytelling is when you have enough of an idea that you can have things solidified in stone and be like, these cannot be changed. Mm -hmm. Figure it out around because that's how the real world world works, right? This thing, gravity cannot change. Figure out stories around that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. The shortcut Misu gave Sokka and Zuko worked. The friends arrive at Noriko's and Norin's house without a sign of Azula. Worried about her arrival, however, Zuko asks Sokka to stand watch while he goes inside. Norin answers his knock and doesn't seem surprised to see him. He tells the Fire Lord as much, but before Zuko can respond, an excited Kii flies into his arms. She calls him her best friend and pulls Zuko to the dinner table, insisting that he eat with them. Norin agrees and Zuko sits with the family where he is moved by the intimacy of them eating together. He asks if they do this every night, to which Noriko responds, of course, that's why they're eating late that night. She insisted they wait until Norin came home from rehearsal. She then asks Zuko what brings him back to Hira. Zuko stumbles over his words, worry and indecision finally giving way to a request for the truth. He asks Noriko if she's happy. Noriko is taken aback by the odd question, but responds, of course, gesturing to her husband and daughter. She's where she belongs. Zuko's face softens into a smile. He excuses himself, saying he's bothered them enough, but Norin stops him. He takes his wife's hand and tells her that he knew this time would come. Turning to Zuko, he asks him to do what he came there to do, to tell her he hasn't forgotten who he is. After a pause, Zuko looks at Noriko and says, My name is Zuko. I am Lord of the Fire Nation, and I'm your son. Cue a freak out. I, mm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Good guy Norm over here could have had yeah. everything. Yep, right? Wow. Good on you, He was about you, to pal. step out. Yeah. I mean, oh, this is also like, Suko's still best boy. Norn is so good. Mm-hmm. They're being good together. Nazul's about to ruin it, but that's okay. <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> there are so many things about this scene. Like, first of all, the fact that Key and Zuko, I commented about that in the last issue before I knew that they were related or we assumed that they could be related. Yeah. Where I was like, okay, so even for like a half sibling, how sweet is it? He's being yeah. so nice to Kiki and she loves him. So how great. But then also like this transition from him wanting to tell them the truth, wanting to get the truth, but then deciding, you know what? It doesn't matter. If my mom is happy, that's all that matters to me. I can leave her be, let her live the life that she wants. And then mm-hmm. the tell her you haven't forgotten who you are. Did you catch that? Yeah, because that's what she said. They've been drilling that into our head for, I feel like, years now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> her parting words, yeah. So what does that mean? That means that Norum knew what her parting words were to Zuko. Yep. And even though Ursa doesn't remember, for all these years, he's been remembering for her. Wow. That's good guy Norm over here, just <laughs> carrying the burden of everything. <laughs> For the love yep. of his life. Yeah. Just what a great character. What a great person. It will surprise absolutely no one that Acorn was sobbing on the couch at this point. <laughs> You're kind of crying right now. <laughs> I'm getting a little red. I'm a little, little teary. A little teary yeah. right now. I can hear it. It's so good. It's very well done. Again, I've seen it 50 million times during these recordings, and I'm just going to keep on saying it. I cannot recommend this book enough. Uh, if you have read it and you're just listening along, please go find a copy and just look at the visuals of it. It's beautiful. Mm-hmm. If you have friends that are maybe listening in the background, we're in the background, your friends were over something like that. Hey, friends, do you like Avatar The Last Airbender? Get this get the search <laughs> right now. <laughs> your next birthday present. There you go. Please. It's wonderful. Yeah. The problems that I have with it, the most nitpicky of nitpicky. Oh. And the larger ones that I have, we've just talked myself out of. Yep. So minimal. I mean, compared to like Suki alone, which we enjoyed, but like there's some problems with that. 
And even the promise too, there's a couple things here or there that were missed, but this is just everything that you want in a sequel to Avatar The Last Airbender is right mm-hmm. here. Yep, 100%. Mm-hmm. And a final fun fact before we move on, mm. apparently the dish that's on their table in those panels is uh, based on a Hawaiian specialty called Loco Moco. Well, now I'm hungry. Yep. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> Back in the Forgetful Valley, the humans are defending themselves against a wrathful forest. Aang and Katara gently fend off the spirit animals with waterbending and airbending, doing their best to keep themselves safe and not harm the spirits. When Aang tells them they have to leave, Misu insists that she and her brother aren't leaving the forest until they get what they came for. Aang promises to get them back later, but there's just no way they can fight off an entire forest. Just then, a flock of spirit birds sweep at Rafa, and Aang bends a blast of air at them, which knocks off Rafa's mask in the process. His face is finally revealed. It's smooth and featureless, without eyes, nose, or mouth. Katara gasps when she sees it, and Misu frantically looks for his mask. But Aang recognizes the handiwork of Ko the Face Dealer. When the Mother of Faces hears that name, she tells the forest to stop. After Aang repeats himself with a lot of unnecessary and accidental insults, she reveals that Ko is her son. He has been estranged from her since time began, and the legends say the reason he has spent all of history stealing faces is because he misses her. This I knew. This was spoiled for me. Mm -hmm. But this was... I want to say it was spoiled because of the last secret podcast we did, but I think it was spoiled even before that for me. Mm Mm-hmm. I knew. Also, I think it's same thing, same time yeah. period. I think we both found out at the same time. Yeah. It just, I feel like if we didn't know, this would have been a much bigger reveal, but I'm not too upset because like we've gotten so many reveals so far. Like, <laughs> yeah. I'm okay. This one, fine. This is the lesser, in my opinion, of the spoils anyways. So I'm cool with it. But like, oh man, just what does it all mean? I, I really just want to see Ko and his mother in a scene together. Oh my gosh, that'd be so good. I want to see how that happens. Because she can't show emotion either. So his powers completely won't work if he tries any funny business. Oh my God, you're right. I would just love that she has all these masks floating behind her. And I would wonder if he would try to match the face to the mask as like he sees them as best he can. Oh, that'd be cool. Oh, that'd be such a cool like side thing happening mm. in a scene, like especially animated. Can you imagine yeah. oh, them having a conversation beautiful. and his face just constantly changing depending on what masks are floating around her? Because that's oh. not actually his face. So what does he care? He's just trying to match it and maybe try to gain the approval of his mom being like, look how many of your beautiful creations that I have. Oh my God. Okay. That's the, <laughs> that's the story slash fan fiction slash however the medium is yeah. I need in my life. It's, oh, I love it. That's my reaction, right? To the scene. Like she talks about the legend. Legend says the reason he's been stealing faces is because he misses her because they've been estranged. But like, We don't know for sure. Right. He could be stealing faces out of missing her or resenting her or Mm -hmm. envying her. There's a lot of cool, like psychological and motive fueled reasons for him to be doing what he does. Or all of the above. Yep. I mean, they've been alive since what? The dawn of time. So probably. Yeah. (laughs) It's probably complicated. Well, they've been alive longer than the dawn of time because she says since time began. So they got separated since time began. Mm. I think. But who knows how long they were in existence beforehand. Yeah. Yeah. Uh Hey, Avatar Studios, here's an idea for you for these things. (laughs) (laughs) Aang tells the spirit that her son isn't the nicest of spirits. He even took someone important away from one of Aang's past lives. And yet that past life spared him. 
This news moves the mother of faces, who begins glowing a radiant orange. She reaches out to Rafa and tells them that she can feel her son's handiwork. The light intensifies and Rafa makes a gagging sound. A moment later, his face is revealed and it's restored. Misu and Rafa embrace. Aang thanks the mother of faces and tells her that while he knows humans can be aggravating and ungrateful, and that he may have been out of line with his earlier request, what he's really trying to do is restore two relationships. One between a sister and a brother, and the other between a mother and a son. Do we want to talk about the colors here? It's just beautiful. It's so beautiful. The blue almost getting washed out by the golden hue that is restoring your face. Mm -hmm. And oh my God, that last on page 193, that last panel where the background's completely blue. It's this very cool hues and tones. And Aang, Mizu, and Katara are just like engulfed in the light. Mm -hmm. It's beautiful. This is like everyone is working at 100 right now. (laughs) Yep. They they brought their A game to this. They know how important it is to stick the landing on this. Because a lot of people for the animated series didn't like the ending. It was just kind of like, yeah, it was fine, but whatever. Like, is the end fight and that turtle is kind of like weird. It just kind of seemed like a way (laughs) to kind of get what they needed to. So I feel like this story was so important to them that they needed to really make sure this was done well. And Mm -hmm. there is not a panel in this, not just series, but this book specifically, where it doesn't invoke some sort of emotion. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting you point that out because again, in the back of the book of the collected issues, there's concept art in one page in particular, I think a couple pages actually, there are three stages of the art process, the sketch, the refined sketch, and the finished page in ink. And I was looking at those. And what was so interesting to me is in some cases, the final inked page changed composition. And when I went back and compared all of the versions, the final version just felt more balanced. It felt more emotive. There were situations where like a character's position was changed and the final version evoked more or showed more emotion than the original idea. So like, I think you're right. I think the whole team was just working at 100 Yeah, <laughs> the whole time. It's just, it's so well. I can't say enough again. It's perfect. This is like the perfect sequel to what you wanted from the series. Mm-hmm. And like, I don't think I've said this before. Everyone looks a little bit older too. And I yeah. like that, which is nice. Yep. They're aging them up really realistically. Yeah. Final note about the art in this scene. You mentioned that the mother of faces doesn't have emotion. Well, that was a very intentional move on the part of Kurihiru. They chose the overall tint and colors to reflect an emotional change. Mm. So she went from glowing blue to glowing orange and yellow to show that upon hearing about her son and the fact that he was spared by the avatar, her whole demeanor changed. And she reached out to Rafa to feel the remnants of his handiwork and to give back his face, almost like to pay back the avatar for his mercy. Yeah, it's just, that's all, that's all we got to say. All good. Mm-hmm. So good. Back in Hira, Norin explains that he recognized Zuko the moment he saw him in the crowd because of his scar. In order to protect his family, he learned as much as he could about Ursa's life in the royal palace. He asks Zuko for his forgiveness. He'd hoped to provide enough information to satisfy his curiosity while still protecting his home and family. A confused Noriko reacts to the name Ursa and is told by her husband that it was once her name. He explains who she used to be, that she had children, and that he also used to have an old name, Ikum. 
Zuko is shocked to hear this and wonders aloud if this is where he truly belongs, with his family, with his father. Norrin is confused and begins to say that's impossible, that he and Ursa never, but a sound interrupts him. What do you think the end of his sentence was going to be there? <laughs> uh, I don't know, because it's censored. <laughs> well, like it, it could be that. Like He could be like, we never... We never had a child. We never conceived. <laughs> right, you could say, have yeah. a child. But in my brain immediately went for the other thing, uh-huh. which I thought yeah, was pretty The funny. more crass <laughs> direction. Yeah. Yes. We never... Oh, gee, and then... But, Things are ruined by crashing sounds upstairs, but still, yeah, I thought yep. that was funny. And this is the point where I realized we were never spoiled on Zuko's parentage because it was a ruse the whole time. Yes, and we suspected that as well. Yes, yes, we did. Right, the second that cliffhanger happened, we were like, if this was real, someone would have at least accidentally ruined that for us. Yep. Zuko recognizes the sounds coming from the roof a moment before Sokka and Azula fall through the ceiling in a flash of lightning. When she sees Noriko, Azula draws herself up in triumph, announcing that she has been dreaming of this moment for so long. Noticing Kiyi when she cries for her mother, Azula bitterly asks if Ursa had another daughter because her last one turned out to be such a monster. Sokka causes a distraction with his boomerang, allowing Norin and Kiyi to escape. But Noriko is pinned to a wall by Azula. The princess tells her that it all ends now, raising a hand holding a blue flame. Zuko shouts for her to let Noriko go, but Azula warns him to stay back. Not afraid, Noriko reaches out and cups Azula's face. She tells her that if what she says is true, if she really is Azula's mother, then she's sorry she didn't love her enough. The words cut through Azula and tears spring to her eyes. At that moment, Zuko breaks between them, pushing his sister back. Azula attacks, but he dodges every strike. As she prepares to use lightning, he reminds her that he knows how to redirect it but she defiantly strikes out anyway. He redirects the bolt back at her, throwing her against the wall. I have thoughts on this whole exchange here. Ooh, let's hear them. He couldn't do that to his own father, but he has no problem zapping his sister. (laughs) I did find that interesting. And there's no... I'm looking... I'm examining this panel right now. Mm -hmm. All they needed to do... So anyone who wants to look, this is page 204 of the Library Collected Edition, right? All they needed to do was he's redirecting. He's got his two fingers pointed out and zapping Azula with her own lightning. Just needed an extra line showing some extra lightning going out through his left hand. And maybe he redirects some of it away so she doesn't get the full brunt of the attack. Mm. Or she did a little mini zap anyways because she's a not in her right mind which I would think would be more power if maybe it's less power because, you know, it could work both ways. Or B, she's holding back because she knows something's not right, subconsciously at least. Mm-hmm. Lightning hurts. Yeah. <laughs> and she's pretty okay in the next panel. Yeah. I I don't think there's a clear answer, but I think the direction you're going is probably the intention that he either diminished the redirection so it's not at full blast or she shot lightning not at full blast. However it played out, I think it's clear that Zuko somehow knew it wasn't going to be lethal. Yeah, yeah. It was just, I I don't know, because we talk about this and there are big parallels, obviously, between Ozai and Azula. Mm -hmm. And I I just can't help but think of that moment during the Day of Black Sun Part 2, I believe it was, where he redirects the lightning, but not directly at his father. Which would have maybe, we thought, I think at the time, that maybe would have saved a whole bunch of trouble for a lot of people. But I think it just probably would have gotten Zuko killed. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's what that would have done. 
but it's just it's just interesting. Like you see the parallels here, and now he's able to be more resolute in his I don't know his uh, stance, his yeah. termination, and then just like be like, okay, here I know this is going to be this is not going to be that bad. Back at you, and just knock her down for a little bit so they can get some sense into her. You know, mm-hmm. how'd you feel about the soccer moment? I love the soccer <laughs> moment. I was debating if I wanted to interrupt you and say how much I love the soccer moment. So thank you for indulging me and, and bringing uh-huh. it up so I can say it. It's just perfect. It's the perfect soccer thing. She's like, what are you going to hit me with that toy? Where's that toy of yours? Right behind you. I already threw it. It's on its way back. <laughs> yes. And then it conks her on the head. <laughs> it's so good. It's just perfect. Sokka is not used to his full potential in my opinion, in this book. Mm -hmm. But it's not about Sokka. He's definitely a background character. He's just there to fill up the party at this point. But when he gets a moment, he gets a moment. And it's true to the character. And I laugh every time I see that panel. The only thing I would probably change is his facial expression because he's more of like a pointing and he's like, he needs a smug look on his face in that panel. Yeah, I agree. That's what he needs. That's the only art critique I have this is just give him that smug Sokka look being like it's right there mm-hmm. I will write a five page paper on how much I love this moment yeah well you're not alone apparently there was a note from I think it was Jean who said mm-hmm. Sokka is to team Avatar as Hawkeye is to the Avengers he's a normal guy who hangs out with and goes up against the uber powerful here we shows how he does it with wit and cleverness yeah <laughs> it's just I love him so much everyone knows that okay sorry let's move on before we actually go into my five page paper on how much I love that moment okay, sure from the floor Azula shouts don't you get it Zuzu you and I will finally be free you of a throne you never really wanted and me of the incessant nagging in my head Zuko pulls out his royal headpiece and attaches it to his top knot, telling her that in his heart he's always known that the throne was his destiny He then pleads with her, saying that even though their relationship is so messed up and may always be, one fact never changes. She will always be his sister. Azula closes her eyes against the words, more tears gathering. Then she tells him to shut up and unleashes another blast of fire and runs from the house, disappearing down the path of the forgetful valley. But before she disappears, she calls back to Zuko. Same as always, Zuko. Even when you're strong, you're weak. Which apparently was used before. I didn't catch this. In this book? Yeah. It was in this book, but also in Sozin's Comet Part 4. It's what Ozai says to Aang. Even with all the power in the world, you're still weak. Yeah. I love it. Again, reusing old themes and old turn of phrases, just like doing callbacks. Mm Mm-hmm really, again, solidifies those who pay attention, who have seen this long enough, who have gone through every single line of dialogue and can recite it by heart. You throw something in there and it just clicks and it makes it feel whole. And it's great. It's cohesive. Cohesive. Satisfying. Yes. (laughs) Noriko directs their attention to the forest where the mother of faces can be seen towering over the trees with Appa and Aang's glider on either side. The spirit asks Noriko if she wishes to return to who she once was to remember. Zuko tells her that she doesn't need to do this, but she says yes. The mother of faces reaches out and restores Noriko to the person she once was. Off to the side, Aang, Sokka, and Katara talk about needing to keep their guard up for Azula. They know she's going to return at some point. Sokka is convinced that she dropped the incriminating letter on accident in her escape, while Aang thinks she might have done it on purpose, because people change. Katara kisses him on the cheek and says that's why she loves him. He always sees the bright side of things. Sokka is still very concerned that his face is like, I don't know about this. Uh, yep. 
Also, just a side note, this is probably the clearest example of why Katara and Aang are so well matched for each other. They're both like unrelenting optimists. Yeah. And they like think very, very positive. I feel like if Katara and Zuko were matched up, there would be a lot more clashing. (laughs) Oh, agreed. Yeah, absolutely. This is where I have a small nitpick. I would have liked to have seen more of the shift or the transition with the mother of faces because it's implied that she goes along with the plan because Aang tells her this is about restoring the relationship of a mother and a son, Yeah, which reflects her own relationship with her son, Ko, mm. which is why she comes out of the forest to restore Noriko to Ursa. But we don't see that. It's implied. And that's just my little nitpick. It would have been really cool to see how that conversation panned out and to watch her actually agree. Okay, yes, I will do this. Yeah, you're right. At surface value right now, it just seems like she's like, okay, I'll do it. You're the avatar. (laughs) Sure, why not? And that's she was very much not that way 10 pages earlier. Exactly. So yeah, I would have absolutely loved to see that. And maybe a little flashback of uh, her and co. Uh-huh. Her and little maybe baby some, some little lesson or wisdom that she imparts before she leaves. Because she shows up, restores Ursa, and then pieces out. No dialogue, no nothing. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's very like almost utilitarian at that point where it's just like, okay, yeah. this is my purpose. It's served. Goodbye. See you later. And there's no more of that flavor to it. Yeah. Which could be because of page space. Maybe they had a limit. Yeah. I'm not maybe. sure. It could also be, you know, the target audience as well might not, mm. might have been maybe in the script and it kind of got cut for content or for, like you said, page limit, any mm. one of this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. But that's okay. Small nitpick. Yeah. I agree. But you're, you're 110% correct. I would have loved to see that as well. Yeah. Sometime later, Zuko and his mother, now restored with her original face, albeit a little bit aged, talk in the yard of their house. Ursa apologizes to him for not loving him enough, for forgetting him. Zuko, though, stronger now after years of growth, tells her that everything turned out okay. He has good friends and a life he can be proud of in a throne he knows is his destiny. But there's one thing he still needs to know. He pulls out the letter about his parentage and hands it to his mother. Ursa takes the letter and tells him the truth. What's in the letter isn't true. I knew it. <laughs> we knew it. We knew it. Like for all of the reasons that we said in the last episode and more, it just didn't feel right. It wasn't spoiled for us. I'm not going to say the next part because it's literally the next scene, but it's just like feels good to be right. You know, feels <laughs> yep. good. Yeah. This is where we find out what happened in the rest of that flashback scene that we originally saw where Ursa confronts Ozai And we find out from that that she wrote the letter as a way to get back at Ozai and to sort of test him to see if he was reading her private letters. In this flashback scene, Ozai acknowledges that he is Zuko's father. But because Ursa wishes Zuko won't turn out like him, he will honor his mother's wish. Every time Ozai speaks harshly to Zuko, every time he wounds him, every time he treats his son like the son of a treacherous dog, it will be because of Ursa. I'm going to pause there. <laughs> yeah. So we had said, again, just going to just gonna be point out that we were right again just for a little bit longer. We even said it feels weird that he would allow her to sneak off unsupervised to conceive a child or even just, I don't know, do anything without any sort of oversight. That's not how Ozai rolls. He is overbearing, controlling, not a good man, not a good husband. And he even says it. <laughs> he admits it. 
He's like, I had spies. I would have known. You can't even use the restroom without me knowing. Yep. Think I don't know, but I know, Ursa. I know. Yeah, it's just like it just feels complete that we know Ozai well enough to be like, this doesn't make sense. Something's not adding up here. Mm-hmm. And then I've said he's not a great villain before. And this book is changing that so much for me. Right. I had that thought too. He looks her dead in the eyes and tells her that like, guess what? I'm going to treat Zuko poorly now. And it's all your fault. Yep. And when it comes to writing sadistic, vengeful, yeah, harmful villains, like that is so good. It is like the the lighting in the room changes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the laws of light change to make him more sinister looking. I have a question for you. This popped mm-hmm. up when I read this and I've been dying to ask you since we've been recording. Ooh, okay. Do you think that he went overboard and burned Zuko as a message to Ursa. Absolutely. Yep. I think that plays into it. You want to know what's even more messed up? What? She didn't get that message when he did it because (laughs) she was not Ursa anymore. Yep. But Norrin did. And you know what Norrin did with that information? He kept it for the love of his life. He sat on it. He held that. That painful, heavy knowledge for his wife. Man. That's also kind of, it's terrible for Zuko, but it's kind of funny. Not in a ha-ha way, but it's funny. In an ironic way. In an ironic way. (laughs) It serves you right kind of way. Ozai is like, oh, I'm going to get Ursa real good with this one. (laughs) And then unfazed. (laughs) Yep. Jokes on him. I do find that very funny. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's great. Again, just great writing all around. I think it takes certain talent to take a two-dimensional character that's established to be two-dimensional, at least in my opinion, and really kind of work within the confines of this already established continuity to make them a better version of what they were. Mm -hmm. And usually you'll see this in comics, but it takes years and decades to really kind of get that to fruition. But they've managed to do it in a very short amount of time with this. Yeah, I, I mentioned before that whole concept about subtext and reading between the lines. And I, I want to say it was Neil Gaiman who talked about, it's either Neil Gaiman or Dan Brown, because I recently heard some talks from them mm-hmm. that were saying it's so important for reader or, or audience attention to give them information to figure out on their own by suggesting things, by planting seeds, by making references or inferences. And that's exactly what's happening here. And I'm thinking back to like Suki alone, for instance, and all of the in-between the line messaging was more deconstructive than constructive because we were yeah. so busy thinking about, but wait, that doesn't make sense because X, Y, Z. And that means and we got distracted and we didn't really like enjoy the story as much. But in this case, all of the, the word choices, the references, the suggestions make you think, oh, but that means and you get excited about it and it's mm-hmm. adding to the story. And adding layers that aren't verbally spoken or shown, but are inferred. And you're like, that's juicy. That just adds to the scene, the character, the situation, what have you. And I think also anything where we were kind of thinking, I don't know if this makes sense entirely. It wasn't in the same way as Suki, right? Where we're like, we know definitively that there are more (laughs) Kiyoshi warriors on that island. And that Suki is not the head. They're on an island. They can't starve. Yeah. They have fish everywhere. Yeah. Like, right. It's more, it was more of like a, 
no, she couldn't go off and have a mini affair, could she? Like, there's always that question. That's not a definitive. They can fish. Mm-hmm, right. They're fine. <laughs> yep, exactly. Just yeah. really good storytelling all around. Yeah, agreed. In the yard, Ursa tells Zuko that Ozai is a wretched man, but there's so much she wants to tell him about his father, about Ikum, and about her life in Hira. Zuko smiles at her and says he'd like to hear about it. He'd like to know everything from the beginning. Everything? Ursa asks. Everything. She smiles at her son. For you, my dear, I'll start from the beginning. The end. Which is the words that were in the very first panel. Yeah. Search part one. Oh, Hmm. just rip my heart out, Gene. Yeah. It was just A++++++ Gene. Mm -hmm. Well done. Well done. Oh, decompress a little bit after reliving that. I know, right? Okay. So like as far as finales go, that was a great finale. Yes. Because it leaves you with this feeling of fullness and like, oh, I have to like decompress. I have to like process all the things that happened. Yeah. They probably could have ended right there and I would have been fine and have no more adventures of the gang. So it kind of, it makes me actually a little anxious about the next stories. Yeah. The rift. It makes (laughs) me very anxious about the rift, but we'll see. We'll see. That's next. Mm-hmm. All right. In usual fashion, we must hear who your MVP is, Greg. I feel like there's going to be a riot if I don't say Ursa. Really? I just feel it in my bones. I agree with that feeling. Okay. <laughs> because she sacrificed so much to ensure that her children were safe. She is just a sweet individual. She's smart. She's cunning. She's beautiful. Even when she's a quote unquote plain face, she's still a beautiful soul. Like everything about her is just amazing. And you can see why and how Zuko turned out the way he turned out. Mm -hmm. And it says something about, I think, Ursa, that her influence was able to stay with Zuko for as long as it did for as little time comparatively that she spent with him versus Ozai. Yeah. I mean, gosh, talk about against all odds. Yeah. Absolutely. So for me, it's Ursa for all those reasons and more. If I'm going to give a little bit of like a, I don't know, like a a nod or something else to another character, it would probably be Aang because he convinced a spirit that was only going to do one wish to do like 50. I'm being (laughs) facetious, obviously, but more than one. Two or three big ones. (laughs) Several big ones. And it, it reinforces that trickster persona that Aang has. And it's not like the same kind of trickster as like Loki is from the MCU, but it's just a kind of a different breed. Cleverness. Yeah, it's like this cleverness that I think people forget that Aang has from time to time because he's mm-hmm. often overshadowed by Sokka in the cleverness department. Yeah. yeah. That's what about so you? funny. Oh man. Well, we're really staying on brand here because yeah. it's like two sides of the same coin. My MVP is Ecom. Okay. And I know he was your MVP last episode. So yes, now it's my turn to vote for him. I think I'm choosing Ecom in this moment because of how much we broke down his role in the story and just how steadfast and true and loyal and strong he is to himself, to Ursa. Yeah. I mean, the man waited for how many years? Like seven, eight years yeah. and created a life for himself while never forgetting his, his one true love. And once he had her back, he remained strong and I would say arguably got even stronger because he was able to shoulder and to carry her entire past while she didn't remember. 
So man, between Ursa and Ikum, I think that's the bulk of the awesomeness in this comic. People often talk about Aang and Katara as like the power couple of Avatar. I'm going to say it's <laughs> Ikum and Ursa. Agreed. Yeah, Agreed. absolutely. What about the moral of the issue? Oh, geez. There's a lot of issues in this more. No, I don't know. But uh, <laughs> the moral of the issue, it's got a pun in it as well. Okay, nice. Can't wait to hear it. I think the moral of this issue is that you can't really take things at face value. Wow. Yep. Wow, wow, wow. You're wow, all wow, wow. welcome. I'm thinking predominantly about many different things, how Ikum and Ursa turned into Norm and Noriko. And, you know, you look mm-hmm. at Norm and Noriko and they look just like ordinary, quote unquote, plain people. And they're not, right? Like Noriko is Ursa, who's a beautiful, elegant, powerful woman and force in the Avatar universe. You also have the fact that the mother of faces was kind of taking Aang's request at face value saying, oh, he's just being a greedy human. Humans Mm. are always greedy with me. If the spirit just took a moment to say, why is that person wearing a mask? Very easily could have been put two and two together and be like, oh, my son. Oh, my son. This one over here with the faces. So I think it's, yeah, it is sometimes and oftentimes you shouldn't take things at face value. They would usually require a deeper investigation. What about you? We will be expecting puns. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know about puns, but you will get a little cheese because I think my moral of the issue is uh, love conquers all. Oh, I agree with that too. Yeah. And again, on on so many levels, right? Like we just talked about how Zuko was able to stay true to who he was and was able to find himself because the love his mother showed him. And Norrin's love for Ursa led to them eventually getting back together again and his strength and then also Katara and Aang's love for each other. While a minor note in this comic, you can still see it, especially when they're standing in front of the mother of faces and holding hands and her telling him this is why she's in love with him because he's just so positive and optimistic and always trying to do his best. So there's a lot of love in this comic. And love has solved many problems in this story. So love conquers all. It's true what they say. Love is all you need. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) But that is it for today's episode. And also the finale and the wrap up for the search. That is another trilogy down. What's that? It's two down, four more to go, I believe. I think so. Four more or rather. Yeah, four more. Oh, geez, that's a lot. I keep Tough, on like, yeah. you know, like I keep on going back and forth, like being like, oh, we don't have that much left. And I think about, oh, we got a lot left. If you're enjoying the comics, you'll be happy to know there are so many more adventures to go on with the gang. And there is one other one that people keep on talking about, <laughs> which I won't say what it is until we get to it. But after the search, it makes me more excited. Mm-hmm. So we'll see. And remember, as always, I'm saying this with my hand under my chin, doing a very cute little pose here. If you've caught up on all the episodes or you're doing the reading with us and just need a little bit of a break, and that break happens to be on Monday or Friday evenings at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, then head on over to twitch.tv slash boostergreg where you can hang out and we'll play some games and we'll talk. We actually just had a really nice discussion on Friday about Avatar with a couple of Avatar the Podcast listeners. So that was a lot of fun. I was very stuck at a puzzle, so I needed something to take my brain off of it. And we filled it with lots of theories. So come on in, hang out. You also find me on Twitter and basically wherever else this says Booster Greg. It's most likely me. So come say hi. 
And same goes for me. You can find me online at Acorn Bandit or on joysons.com where I create enamel pins. Also, if you prefer Etsy, it is Joyson Studio over there. Coming up next time. The Rift Part 1. I can't wait. I can't wait either. See you next time on Avatar, Avatar the, the Podcast. podcast. Avatar, the podcast, is a proud part of the Geek Generation Network. Remember to check out all of our other podcasts at thegeekgeneration.com.